Hi everyone and welcome to the Nurtured Village podcast. I'm your host Emma Gray and I'm a mum of two and health professional in Brisbane, Australia. We already know it, parenthood is beautiful, incredibly beautiful, but it's messy and complicated, but we don't have to do it alone. Through this platform, I aim to have raw and honest conversations with inspiring individuals in parenthood. I hope to share the insight and advice from professionals in a parenting-related space to educate us on this journey that we have the privilege of being on. This platform is for you, so I truly hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode, I am so blessed to be speaking with Emily Henlon. Emily is a clinical psychologist based in Sydney, Australia, and has specific interest in autism spectrum disorder. Her interest in this area began at an early age when her younger brother, Richard, was diagnosed with autism. Emily, hi, welcome. I absolutely love collaborating with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your personal and professional experience with us. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. What is autism? So autism is um, a condition that affects how a person thinks, feels, interacts with others and experiences their environment. So it is a chronic condition and what that means is it is a lifelong disability. I think there are a few things out there that um, insinuate that autism can be cured from my professional opinion, it can not be. Like symptoms can absolutely improve, but if you are born with autism, you will have autism um, for your own, your whole life. Um, and even though someone may not be kind of diagnosed until um, adulthood, symptoms must be present in childhood. That's actually part of the diagnostic criteria that symptoms have been present from mm-hmm. a really young age. But I think what confuses a lot of people is that like autism is such a broad spectrum and our current like diagnostic criteria only has three diagnostic levels. Whereas like, if you ask me, we probably need more like 50. Um, Mm -hmm. So you've got three, you've got your level ones, which were, uh, and not everyone loves these labels, but it's what we've got. So it's just Mm -hmm. what we've got to go with. We've got level one, which is your probably your highest functioning individuals, um, and they would probably have formally been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome before the the criteria was changed. Then you have um, level two, which is a moderate disability, and then you have level three, which is quite severe. Um, Most but not all level three diagnoses are, um, you know, nonverbal, have very limited self-help and self-care skills, and they they can't do a lot of those day-to-day tasks without extensive support from from family. Um, As I said, your brother Richard was diagnosed with autism and I was really touched by his bio and I wanted to share it if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. His bio reads, Richard Haberai is in his 20s. He lives in Sydney with his family and he's on the autism spectrum. Despite a poor prognosis, Richard has achieved beyond what was imagined by professionals. His parents were told that he would never speak or walk and were discouraged from having any hope for him. Richard has overcome huge obstacles and today is an inspiring man intent on living life to the fullest and making a difference in the lives of others. Emily, you must be so proud of your brother. What has been your family's experience of autism? Yeah, look, I'm really, really proud of him, especially because, you know, 20 plus years ago when he was diagnosed, there was nothing in Australia. Like autism was very, like not well known at all. Um, And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. a lot of um, people that were like that were autistic were not diagnosed. There was no funding or support and they were just thrown into like nursing homes almost because there weren't even, you know, youth mental health facilities. Um, So 
our situation is a little bit different. We knew from before before Richard was diagnosed, we knew that there was going to be some sort of issue due to a mismanaged birth. Um, so we, my family started um, therapies long before you typically diagnosed child probably would. Um, and mm-hmm. so, like I said, we knew something was wrong Um just before before we probably would have known otherwise. So my parents worked really, really hard to make sure he could have the best start in life. And it was just so hard because, like I said, we weren't given no support from family or doctors. So my mum went to numerous doctors just looking for, like, what, what she could do to help. And the only advice she ever got from one doctor, which is so insane, is forget about this child, have another one. <laughs> I know. That's what was said to like that was said to her. So imagine, you know, you go into these appointments, you know, trying to hold on to clutch onto any small shred of hope that you have left for this child and you get told that. And it's just so crazy mm-hmm. and it goes to show that you should just always follow your heart because we were told he would never walk, he would never talk, he'd be deaf and he'd be blind and he's literally none of those things. He walks, he doesn't stop talking um, and he (laughs) could definitely see and hear. But I guess for us, the biggest challenge aside from like the medical world not being up to speed with what autism was back then is the alienation that came with the diagnosis. So we experienced a lot of alienation um, from family and from friends and I, I posted actually about this on my Instagram page yesterday but even now all of our family extended family and friends you know are always there when Richard's on the news or Richard's on the project or he's doing really well but if you know where are they when we like actually need them and to this day that's actually a bit of a problem and I don't really care who I I offend (laughs) anymore at this point because you know I think people just need to be held accountable of um you know how debilitating that alienation can actually be for the whole family. I can't imagine. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine how hard that must have been for your mum. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess you have a baby and you have hopes and aspirations and you imagine what their life's going to be like. And to Mm -hmm. be told that from health professionals is, um, yeah, extraordinary. It's unbelievable. It really is. Autism Australia predicts that one in 70 people are on the autism spectrum and boys are four more like four times more likely to have it than girls. Would you agree with those numbers? Yeah, look, I'd say that's pretty accurate and I think that's why I find it so crazy that there's not more support because if you factor in all the family members to every person diagnosed with autism, that's a lot of people in society. Mm-hmm. You know, one in 70, that means when you go to the shopping centre, there's at least probably 50 people there on the autism spectrum yet we're still not an inclusive society we're more aware of autism but I don't think we're as inclusive as we um could be and I guess that that fact that you said about girls um being less likely to be diagnosed with boys that's a tricky one because boys are definitely more likely to receive a diagnosis but I think girls are definitely underdiagnosed and misdiagnosed mm-hmm. so a lot of girls are instead diagnosed with something like anxiety and I think that's um often because girls in general are much better at masking their symptoms which means that they kind of fly under the radar and they and they read their environment and try and just copy others and they and they try and fit in that way so unfortunately because of that they do fly under the radar and I don't think mm-hmm. they're properly represented in those statistics 
At what age will signs of autism typically start to appear and what are the common symptoms of autism? Yeah, so age of symptoms is a tricky one. Usually symptoms definitely tend to start early on. Um, Some of the very first telltale signs can be, you know, not responding to to your name at all whenever it's called, lots of sensory difficulties, not liking tags on your clothes or being really sensitive to certain food textures. But what's really important to remember is there's a lot of diagnostic criteria for autism. So I don't want people listening to this to freak out and go, oh my God, my kid doesn't like tags. Maybe they're on the spectrum. I was like, my daughter ticks all of those boxes. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's the thing. There's so many things. And I think that's where you know, autism is such a tricky diagnosis and such an intricate diagnosis because you've got all those things that could be pretty common and then you've got things like speech delay, gross motor difficulties, fine motor difficulties, um, you know, really, really big behaviours and and that sort of thing. And unfortunately, I think the term meltdown is very overused. There's a big difference between a tantrum and a meltdown. And if you've ever experienced a four-hour meltdown, you will never misuse that term. ever again yeah full-on meltdowns um so yeah those sorts of symptoms are typically are typically um noticeable early on but because autism is such a spectrum everyone is different and it kind of also depends like what level of diagnosis um the child has so level one a level one diagnosis you may not notice any differences until they go to like a formal schooling environment and you can really see that there's a lot of social difficulties when compared to their peers so yeah even though symptoms are present early on sometimes you know kids go halfway through school before they're even diagnosed where should families start I mean are we looking around the age of two or three or is it just it's such a spectrum that we can't really set a particular age to a child I mean most of the time I'd say two or three if you're noticing there's significant milestone delays you know get a second opinion a second opinion is never going to to hurt especially if you're mm-hmm. worried best case scenario it puts your mind at ease and you get a few strategies just develop to develop those little milestones that may be lagging uh, like worst case scenario which i say in, in you know with inverted commas is that you've you've gotten in you've seen a professional and you can get started on early intervention which is so important early intervention when it comes to autism is key and why is it so important i think it's because the uh, like when children are younger um they're still at an age where they can learn things a little bit easier if you think about it like Mm -hmm. surfing right that's a metaphor I like to use if you try and pick up surfing at three it's a lot easier to then carry that into adulthood but if you try and pick up surfing at 30 it's a lot harder to do so the earlier you try and teach new skills the easier it is for a child to then develop those skills um and like I'm not shy to say that I think if we didn't do early intervention with my brother he would I I don't know if he would be verbal to be honest Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where should families, they should first see their GP and then what pathway would they typically go down? Yeah, so you could go see your GP and just grab a mental health care plan, which gives you 20 sessions now with a psychologist every calendar year. Um, And you can go Mm -hmm. to a psychologist and just chat to them about what's going on. They may say, look, um, yeah, you're right, let's do an assessment. Or they may say, oh, before we do an assessment, 
can we just get a second opinion from the OT and the speech pathologist and that sort of thing? But I will say, Mm -hmm. make sure that you go to a psychologist that has experience with autism and has experience and has done the training to administer autism assessments. Not all of them do and not all psychologists are equal in regards to their skill set. You know, some, some have training in personality disorders and you don't want to go see the wrong person. So make sure that you do your research or ask around in, you know, community um hubs online and everything and and find someone that that will be able to really benefit you and not steer you down the wrong path what is the cause of autism so this is a really tricky one and i think honestly the answer will change you know depending on who you ask and but if you ask me i think the jury's still out on that one i think there's obviously some sort of genetic link um because some families you'll you'll um notice have like five children on the autism spectrum but then in other families you know they may have one child on the autism spectrum and four typically developing children so there definitely probably is some sort of genetic link but we're still not sure what that is and sometimes you're like yeah there is a genetic link and then sometimes you know I have clients that are twins one of them has autism one of them doesn't and they're identical twins so you would think if there was only a genetic link and genetics was the only factor that both those children would have that diagnosis so I think it's a a matter of sometimes genetics sometimes you know it's a secondary diagnosis to brain damage or birth distress which was the case with my brother um, and that sort of thing so I don't think right now anyone can pinpoint one exact cause I had a message from a podcast listener and she wrote, I'm a neuropsychologist and work in a developmental clinic. I often see a lot of misdiagnosis and misunderstanding. I love that you're speaking about this. What are the common myths and misconceptions around autism? And I'm sure there's a lot. Yeah, there there are a lot. And the four biggest ones for me is, so number one, people assume that all children with autism have an intellectual disability not true Uh, but on that note as well a lot of people think that all children with autism have this like special talent and that's not true either Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that's can be annoying to like people will ask like oh what's this gift and you're like (laughs) shut up (laughs) um uh, another one is that all children with autism are loud and disruptive that's absolutely not the case like a lot of autistic kids really fly under the radar at school and sometimes it's when they get home that they let loose because they feel safer at home um Mm -hmm. that all children who are high functioning don't require any support and that couldn't be further from the truth either just because a child is high functioning doesn't mean that they don't struggle especially in social situations and we've got to be really careful there because if we just let these kids to fend for themselves we're setting them up for future anxiety and depression and other mood disorders so that's an important one and then finally perhaps the most important misconception is that people with autism don't want friends or aren't interested in having friends and that just literally could not be further from the truth people with autism crave social interactions they just don't know how to go about it in a socially appropriate manner what are some of the common signs that parents commonly but incorrectly align with being signs of a spectrum disorder. So I think like, you know how you were saying like, oh, my daughter ticks all those boxes in Mm -hmm. regards to the sensory things. I think sensory things, a lot of, um, you know, especially younger kids will have, will be a bit funny about certain, you know, textures of food and, and sensory experiences and loud noises and tags. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're autistic. It's just one of the 
several signs of autism. So that's an important one. I think as well, speech delay. Um, obviously, if there's a significant speech delay, um, that may be indicative of something else, but that doesn't always necessarily mean, like speech delay doesn't equal autism. Um, speech delay is a part of autism. So um, it can mean a number of other things as well. And then probably, like mm. I said before, tantrums. So there is a huge difference between tantrums and meltdowns. And I think we still have a lot of work to do to kind of um, explore like what the big differences are there and um, educate parents as to like what a tantrum is and what a meltdown is. Because tantrums are very common um, for kids, but meltdowns mm. maybe aren't as common. How is autism diagnosed? So this is a tricky one. A lot of a lot of psychologists will diagnose uh, like by themselves, especially with adults. So with adults, I'm personally more comfortable, um, you know, getting one or two other opinions or talking to a couple of health professionals and not engaging a speech in an OT because often when you're diagnosing someone that's a teenager or an adult, their speech is is relatively okay and and, and that's all right. But if you're looking at from a child's perspective, I firmly believe it should be an integrated approach. And what I mean by that is formal assessment should be done by a psychologist, a speech pathologist and an occupational therapist and then on top of that a pediatrician kind of gathers all that information and the ped is the is the person that actually makes that formal diagnosis and like you know gives it the stamp of approval sort of thing just out of my own interest is there speech pathologists and occupational therapists who would have extra training in autism or all of them are kind of have a background of autism through their studies i think um it's it's very similar to psychologists so speech pathologist i think speech pathologist is the one that you could probably get away with not having um too much experience in autism even though i personally believe that you, sh- you should always um see a clinician that has experience but the speech pathologist is more looking at like their social language their receptive language and their expressive language so in that regard they don't have to have too much training in that area but when it comes to ot absolutely and ot's are very few and far between um so it can be really difficult to find one but not all ot's have experience in like sensory assessments or sensory um therapy or even know a lot about sensory stuff they more focus on the fine and gross motor skills so when it comes to ot absolutely you need an autism kind of specialist but with speech i think that's the one area where you can get away with just having like an awesome speechy that doesn't necessarily have too much additional training in autism is it true that children need to get to a particular age to be able to accurately diagnose autism usually they we say like around the age of three is the typical um time that you would diagnose but uh one of the most common assessments which is the ADOS um which is a an assessment a psychologist would administer can be done from 18 months so Mm -hmm. I think though when it comes to any any child under the age of three you just want to proceed with caution and just make sure that it's not some minor delays in a few areas so I always say like look this is a provisional diagnosis but before we formally diagnose this child I want to, you know, do a little bit of therapy and see if we can catch him up. I think now especially we have a little bit more leeway to wait because with the NDIS that's rolled out, so the National Disability Insurance Scheme, um, any child under the age of seven doesn't have to have a formal diagnosis to receive funding, which is awesome. So we're not just slapping diagnosis diagnoses on these kids. We just have to show that there is a significant delay in certain milestones and they can still access funding to help further those milestones. So they're not missing out on the early intervention but we're not you know forcing a diagnosis that may not be necessary which is really cool 
Do you agree that the incidence of autism is increasing or we're just more aware and more people are being correctly diagnosed? I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I definitely think that there are a lot of people that weren't diagnosed, that went through life undiagnosed. Um, So I don't necessarily think that there's this like huge influx of autism and we need to be worried about our vaccines and we need to be worried about what we're eating when we're pregnant because that may cause autism. I think it's that we're more aware um, of what autism is so we're more accurately diagnosing it. We have really only skimmed the surface of early childhood autism and what parents should do if they suspect that their child may have symptoms of a spectrum disorder. There is so much more that we could cover. And if people are interested in hearing more, Emily has an online autism masterclass designed to inform parents, educators, therapists, carers, and support workers about autism. I'll pop the link in the show notes. Emily is also on social media at The Playful Psychologist and has a podcast of the same name. Emily, thank you again for speaking with us and thank you for sharing your personal experience. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. If you're still here, well done on sticking in there. I hope that you could take something out of today's episode. I would love it if you could click subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any new and previous episodes. Leave a review and rating on your podcast platform. That way I can reach as many families as possible who may need to hear exactly what we're talking about. You can follow me on Instagram at The Nurtured Village and make sure you check out if we have a Nurtured Village hamper community close to you. As I record this, we have 10 locations across New South Wales, Queensland and the ACT and we're growing quicker than I can keep up with if you didn't like today's episode lie to your friends and tell them that it was a worthwhile listen see you soon